as we try to get started here, we're going to be on the uh, second imperative command. We've, I have decided to, to teach uh, Peter through these seven foundational imperative commands. Uh, there are other imperative commands, obviously, but I'm going to, just for outline's sake, I'm choosing these other keys. And we talked about the first imperative command, which was in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, about guarding up the loins of your mind, being sober and resting your hope fully upon grace that will occur, revelation of Christ. So we, we've seen that. We looked at the theology behind that that we're elect, that we're pilgrims, that we are saved by the triune God, each participant in our salvation. And uh, we've also looked at our inheritance. We looked at the, uh, that we're kept by the power of God. We looked at how in- incorruptible our inheritance is. And I uh, hope we've gleaned from it. And then last week we spent the whole time on trials. Remember we talked about trials, the perspective that they're for a little while, uh, they vary in, in, in how we, in God deals with us through the trial. We talked about that in great detail. We talked about the grieving that the trials cause us, the stress. It basically proves the genuineness of our faith that we are in Christ. And we talked about the preciousness. So, uh, I want to, uh, go now to, uh, uh, uh the second imperative command. And I'm going to mood everybody as I go through this. If you want to speak, just feel free to unmute yourself. But we've got everybody muted. Uh, but we're going to look at imperative command number two. And it's going to be found in chapter two, verses one through three. We're going to, we're going to go ahead and read this. And then we're going to look at the theology behind this imperative command as, as we study this, the word. So let me read chapter two. Uh, Verses 1 through 3, imperative command number 2. Therefore, lay aside all malice, lay aside all deceit, lay aside all hypocrisy and envy, and lay aside all evil speaking as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. So we're going to look at this imperative command and then we're going to look at the theology behind this command. We're going to look at the fact we are able to obey Christ because we are holy. We're going to look at we've been set apart uh, by Christ. Uh, we have been uh, sanctified, and we are hagios. We are saints. We're going to look at the judgment uh, that we need to be, have a reverential fear towards as we look toward obedience. And then we're going to look at redemption itself. Then we're going to look at the effects of the word as the word purifies us and as the word uh, changes us uh, through God's means. So we're going to look at this. Uh, but let's look at the, the imperative command to begin with. Uh, and so uh, the word laying aside basically means when, when, when Peter says uh, to lay aside all malice, uh, basically he's, it means to rid yourself of all malice. Uh, one of the commentators said uh, to rid yourself of malice is to make a sweeping removal of all hindrances to spiritual growth. And it's a definitive, it's a definite break with sin. And it's really the picture that we see uh, in this context is the flinging off of an infected uh, stained garment. It's the removal of evil. 
and it's uh and the word rid yourself or or uh laying aside is in the aorist tense. That means you do it once and for all and and it's a commandment and it occurs when we are set apart by God and it is a process through which we spend the rest of our lives as we as we put off the old and we put on the new. So as we get into this, uh want to understand. So look at some verses to support this. Uh we are set apart by God, we are sanctified by the Spirit of God, and we are positioned in Christ. And that's a one-time event. We call it justification. But then there's an event called sanctification, which is a lifetime event, which is a process event. It's an event in which we, as God's people, must cooperate. We must pray. We must read the Word. We must be obedient. And we, through trials, through obedience, He conforms us to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. So we see uh, that uh, Peter is reiterating what the Apostle Paul says about laying aside getting rid of the old garments stained with sin. Old, all things uh, are old or passing away, and in the new, everything is becoming new. It's a process. But let me just look at some verses to support this as we get started. Uh, Colossians, as we look at the preeminence of Christ in the church, uh, this is a familiar text, uh, a text that I know Keith uses a lot in his counseling sessions. Uh, but it's uh, Colossians 3, starting at verse 1. Uh, Colossians 3, verse 1. If you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, seating, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on earth. For you died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death. Get rid of, lay aside your members which are on the earth. And it talks about these members, fornication, uncleanliness, passion, evil desires, covetousness. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked when you used to live in them. But now you're to put off these things. And then in verse 12, we're to put on things. Or to put off the, the anger, the wrath, the malice, the blasphemy, the filthy language. And then in verse 12, chapter 3 of Colossians, we are to put on the tender mercies. We are to put on the kindness and the humility as the Holy Spirit bears this fruit in us. And he produces Christ-likeness in our lives. So the Apostle uh, Peter, uh, in this comparative command number two, uh, bids us to rid ourselves of our of our former life, uh, and to look to him. And, it, and it, it's involved the mind. Uh, we know what uh, Philippians 4, 8 says, whatsoever things are noble and worthwhile and virtuous, a good report, we need to think on these things. So as we cooperate with God's grace, as he's changing us in this process, we need to cooperate and we need to, uh, make sure our minds are right before God, that we are thinking the right things, that we are focusing on the right things, that we are rejecting, as we talked about the imperative command number one, we reject the wisdom of the world, we reject the philosophies of the world, and we, when we focus our minds, we set our jaws, metaphorically speaking, toward Christ, and we lay aside the old. And we got another verse 
It's uh, very critical to this understanding. It would be found in the book of Ephesians, where Christ is the head of the church, is the is the central point of this book, uh, as Paul wrote it. But it would be Ephesians chapter four. Uh, similar verbiage. This laying aside uh, and getting rid of the garments stained by sin. Uh, Ephesians four seventeen. If you're with me, therefore. Testifying the Lord, I do, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. There's that setting of the mind concept. Having their understanding, it's darkened, it's being alienated, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, their past feeling. They've given themselves over to lewdness to work all in cleanliness with greediness. But you brothers in Christ, have not so learned in Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus. Put off your former conduct, the old man, which is corrupt according to lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you may put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. So we see this concept verified by the Holy Spirit through Paul's writings that we are to put off the old and put on the new. We're to rid ourselves of the garments of sin. And uh, so we see the commandment is to lay aside uh, uh, all malice. Now, the word malice is where laying aside this is this is a comparative command, part of our sanctification process. The word malice uh is the most general word used for evil, and it's the most general word used for wickedness in the scripture. The word is kakeia in the uh, uh, in the Greek, and it's and it really means uh, Peter is telling us to rid ourselves of all moral evil in all of its forms, all badness, all faultiness, anything that is opposed to character, anything that is opposed to uh, the benefits we receive in Christ, anything that is morally inferior and that is base, anything that is inconsistent with our new nature in Christ Jesus. Peter tells us to lay aside anything, uh, uh, and it also involves an attitude of ill will towards others. Uh, as you notice these, this imperative command that Peter tells us to lay aside the malice, the deceit, the hypocrisy, the envy, and the evil speaking, all of these are related. And all of these uh, are opposite of love. We're to love our neighbors and not do any harm to our neighbor. We're to love Christ with our heart, soul, strength, and mind. Malice is that form of evil that is contradictory to all that is holy and all that is loving uh, who is in Christ. So it's an attitude of ill will. So Peter says we're to lay aside any uh, malfeasance we have towards others, any attitude that is ill will towards others. And it's and all these others, the, uh, the, the deceit and the hypocrisy flow from the malice of the heart. So Peter starts with the malice because it is the it is the big picture item, and Peter is saying you get rid of the big picture item, the evil intent of the heart, 
and these that flow from it, they will go away also. So Peter's saying, lay aside the malice, the attitudes that are disruptive to the Christian life, lay them aside. And then he says, lay aside all deceit. Uh, deceit, obviously, the word is dolan in the, in the Greek. And it means, uh, I love what it means. Really, I hate what it means because we're all guilty of it. Deceit means the desire to get the better of someone by cunning deception. It's the, this, the word originally, man, it's interesting. It's bait for fish. And so when you're deceitful, you're trying to catch someone. You're, you're luring them with a deceitful bait with the intent of entrapping them and catching them and using them. And it's a, it's, it's to hurt someone for personal gain. So Peter is saying, lay aside this malice of the heart, which leads to deceit because you're trying to hurt someone purposefully out of a maliceful heart and you're trying to bait them and trap them and you're trying to deceive them. So Peter says, lay that aside. Uh, you're holy, you're set apart. We'll get into that in a second. But then he says, lay aside all hypocrisy. Now, hypocrisy, uh, uh, the word hypocrisy, we know what this word is. We've, we've been taught it. We know it. Uh, we know Jesus' teaching on hypocrisy. We'll get into this in a second. But the word hypocrisy means to put on a mask. It means to be an actor. A, a hypocrite is someone who is very spiritual and very pious on Sunday, who loves his brothers and sisters and uh, talks about his obedience to Christ and how much he loves the brothers and how he loves the word. But Monday through Saturday don't uh, don't equal to that. And a, and a hypocritical person is someone that uh, is uh, uh, conceals the motives of his heart. A hypocrite uh, is uh, his face is very different from his heart. Jesus spoke most critically about the. Uh, Pharisees of his day, and he called them hypocrites. In the uh, in the scathing, the one of those scathing chapters in all the Gospels, I refer you to uh, Matthew 23. Jesus uh, is very, very hard on the Pharisees of his day. The Pharisees were leading the people astray, and they were foundational in the rebellion of the nation of Israel by their by their laws and their man-made rules. And so Jesus was rightly so very angry with the Pharisees. And so look at some of the ways in which the Pharisees were hypocritical as we, as we pull off their masks, as, as, as Jesus reveals their heart. Look at the Matthew 23. Uh, if you look at verse 3, I'm not going to read all this. It's lengthy. I'm just going to point out some of the hypocritical ways of the Pharisees and how Peter instructs us as redeemed people that we've got to lay this aside because it reflects a, a wicked heart. Uh, in verse 3, chapter 23, Matthew, uh, whatever they, the, the Pharisees, tell you to observe, uh, that observe and do, but don't do according to their works. For they say and do not do. And then in verse 5, but all their works they do to be seen by men. They've got this mask. They're actors. They want to be seen of men. They want to be patted on their long robes by men. They want to be praised. They want to say, my, what a pious prayer you are, Mr. Pharisee. And they want to, they want to have their accolades before men. And so, 
So uh, Jesus uh, uh, tears down their philosophies and tears down the the, uh, the wickedness of their hearts. Uh, look at verse. Uh, if you look at verse 14, what are you, scribes and Pharisees? You devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. So they want to be known for their piety. They want to be known for their ability to pray. And they want to be praised for this. But Jesus said it's a pretense. It comes from a heart that is full of dead men's bones. It looks good on the outside. So Jesus is, is saying the Pharisees are hypocritical. Look at uh, uh, look at verse 25. I think uh, verse 25 sums it up well. Jesus saying, speaking to the Pharisees, you cleanse the outside of your cup, but the inside is full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and the dish that the outside may be clean also. Woe to you Pharisees, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all kinds of uncleanliness. You outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy. So Peter tells us, lay aside the heart prone to wickedness, lay aside the the uh, deceit of your mouth, lay aside the hypocrisies of your heart. And uh, he's looking for hearts that are renewed by his spirit. He's looking for that in his people. And then he says, lay aside envy. You're following along this categorical list here of things to lay aside envy. Uh, is a running mate of hypocrisy. Envy is, it's even got a color, the color green. Uh, and it's, uh, it's a feeling of displeasure, uh, when, when, uh, others have an advantage in your mind or prosperous in your mind and you are jealous of them and you are envious of them and you're angry in your spirit. Uh, you really wanted to fame them because they, you perceive them to have specific blessings. Perhaps it's within the church if you envy a brother or a sister, a brother or sister that may have a gift of mercy or may have a gift of giving or may have a gift of teaching or may have a gift of mercy or may have a gift of speaking or telling truth God's word and you're envious of that and you, and you, in your heart, you are, are jealous of that and you wish that you had that gift and you are you're shaking your fist against God. And why did, why was this person given this gift? And why wasn't I given this gift? And there is a sense of, of, uh, of frustration at God because he has equipped someone else differently than you. And you're, and you're not excited for that person. You don't bless that person. You don't learn from that person's gifts, but instead you are uh, cantankerous toward that person and you're jealous. So, uh, and this is, this is, uh, envy is, uh, is something that is very prevalent within the church today, I think, and it was very prevalent among the disciples. Uh, if you'll look at Mark chapter 10, I think some people wrongly think that the, that the apostles and the disciples were, were a super Christian, super spiritual, didn't struggle. That's not true at all. They struggled with envy too, and you see this uh, this heart, this mirror to their hearts opened up in this verbiage in Mark chapter 10, where we see the disciples, particularly uh, James and John, uh, they're disputing about uh, who's going to be the greatest among the disciples. And this sort of opens up 
a, uh, a lesson on, uh, on envy to us that Peter teaches us uh, to, uh, to avoid and to rid ourselves of. If we're looking at uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 35, uh, we see James and John, uh, they're talking to Jesus. And verse 35, teacher, we want you to do what we ask. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And they say, grant to us that we may sit on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. And so John Calvin says that this is a mirror of human vanity, that we we desire uh, to be have special favor with God at the exclusion of other people, and we we are vain in our own imaginations apart from the changing word of God in our hearts. And then we see in verse 41, uh, look at what the other disciples say in verse 41, and when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John, they were envious of them, and they were not—they uh, were not pleased with their attitudes of their heart. It, it masked their own envy. Uh, they were jealous, and so we see that envy. Uh, scripture tells us it's like a cancer. Uh, Roman uh, Proverbs fourteen thirty tells us that envy is a rottenness to the bones, and it uh, there's no place for it in God's in God's people and his in his house and his church within his body and uh and it tells us specifically that love does not envy love uh, doesn't think critically of others uh love is not jealous of the gifts God has given others and so Peter says rid yourselves of envy and then is an outflow of envy because we are not content with the gifting God has given others within the body and we are jealous of them which mask our own hearts, we then have a tendency to speak evil of others. In that word, the last uh, uh, commandment, we are to lay aside the malice, the deceit, the hypocrisy, the envy, and the evil speaking. Evil speaking really translated slander. And slander is when you run down or you disparage others and you assault others' character. And it uh, usually takes place behind the back. And it is a fruit of envy. So if I envy someone uh, because of whatever reason, it is very natural for me then to try to disparage them and to slander them and to speak poorly behind them because <coughs> excuse me, the real purpose of that is because I'm envious in my heart. I want to make myself feel better about myself, and I want to disparage my fellow brother. Peter says, rid yourself of all these things because truthfully they come from hearts uh, that are full of malice and are full of uh, ill will towards others. So that is the imperative command. Peter says, rid yourselves of these things. They're not appropriate within the body of Christ, and we are to rid ourselves of these things. Now we say, difficult, how do we do that? In the middle of this of these verses is the key. Uh, scripture never leaves us, uh, gives us commandments without giving us the keys to being obedient to the commandments. So in this comparative command, we see the key to laying aside these things is, is in verse, uh, two. As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow. The key to laying aside 
these horrific character traits is desiring the word of God. That word desire is most is best translated crave. And so I want to ask you and I want to ask me, as the focal point of today's teaching, it's not the laying aside, it's the craving the word of God. Do you crave the word of God? The word of God is the means by which we rid ourselves of the malice and the envy and the evil speaking and the hypocrisy. The, the word of God is the means by which he's ordained that we grow and we are nurtured and that creates change in our hearts and creates this conformity to the image of Christ as he shakes us in this process of sanctification. So the word crave, it says desire the pure milk of the word. The word is crave. The word crave means, and I will quote from one of the uh, commentators that I have looked at this, it has to have a longing for. The word means to have a vigorous craving. The word means to have a keen appetite for God's word. And uh not a doctor, but I but I know one, uh, and I know several, and one of the uh, diagnoses of your health or not is, do you have an appetite? And so I want to ask me, and I want to ask you, do you have an appetite for God's Word? The desire and the craving and the longing you have for God's Word is going to give evidence of your spiritual health. Do you have a keen appetite for God's word? Can you say with the psalmist, I long to be in your presence and I long for your word? That craving of God's word is going to be one, one of the indicative factors that lead us to our, to our spiritual health. Do I have a craving for God's word? And so, uh, that is going to be, uh, foundational in our abilities by God's Spirit to lay aside the, the, the hearts that are wicked. And we see this, uh, Psalm 119, if you, if you type time this week, Psalm 119 is 175 verses of pure craving for God's Word. This psalmist, perhaps it's Ezra, we don't know who it is, but this psalmist in every one of the verses except for two, emphasizes God's word and the craving he has for God's word, the longing he has for God's word, and the understanding he has that God's word must change him. And I've found in my life, and I know you have too, that the more you read God's word, the more you crave it. It's a developed uh, love. The more you read it, the more you love it. The more you love it, the more it changes you. And the more you love it, the more you want to share it with other people. So if you don't love the word, it is most probably because you don't have a craving for it and you don't read it. So you don't get anything out of this abbreviated time together this morning. Ask yourself and examine yourself. Do I love God's word? Do I crave it? And can I say with psalmist, look at 119. Just want just to pick out a couple of these verses and just to check us. We're to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. We are to make sure of our calling and our election. 
And I can't think of another, a better way to make sure of where we are spiritually, health-wise, is our craving for the Word of God and, and, and our love for the Word of God. Look at Psalm 119, if you would. Just a couple of verses. Look at verse 2. Blessed are those who keep His commandments, who seek Him with their whole hearts. And this is a seeker of God's commandments, a seeker of His Word, because He craves them. Verse 5, look at the psalmist. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. This is the man who desires God's ways. He understands that only God's ways uh, cleanse us, directs our paths. He understands this about the effects of God's word. Look at verse 15. Uh, I will meditate on your precepts. I'm going to contemplate your ways, and I want to delight myself in your law. And I want to not forget your word. These are characteristics of someone who craves the word, delights in the word, and uh, contemplates the word, and hides the word, and meditates on the word, and understands the word is a light into his path and a lamp into his feet. Uh, Look at verse uh, uh, 18. Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. A craver of God's word asks God, by his spirit, to open his or her eyes that you may see the wondrous things of the law. Ever get bogged down in God's word? Ever get confused by God's word? Ever have a misunderstanding? Ask him to open your eyes that you may see the wonders of God's word. And as you see the wonders, uh, he causes you to delight in the word. And it's all over this psalm. Verse 24 is another one. Your testimonies are my delight and my counselors. This is the man who craves the word, and the word is changing him. And the word is, is the word supernaturally removes the filth from our flesh. As accompanied by the Spirit, this the word sets us apart and enables us and gives us new desires and it gives us new abilities. So we see just some examples of how. Psalmist crave the word, and this would be a good thing for us to test ourselves. Do we crave God's word? Notice that Peter uses uh, figurative language. I, I, I love the way Peter speaks. Peter is a, a simple fisherman, and he appeals to the lay person. He appeals to those who uh, may be ordinary that are understanding the scripture, but he uses real life situations to, to bring alive the Word of God. I love the way he does it. He says there's newborn babes. Uh, I'm quite sure in one of the commentators I was reading, Peter was was uh, was probably never left his mind. Remember when Jesus, the disciples, the little, the children were coming to Jesus and the disciples had in their hearts, you know, let the master alone, he's busy. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of heaven. You've got to come just like a child. You have to come. In this picture of a newborn babe, it's just a picture of, a, of, a, of an infant, a young, a, a little baby craving his mother's milk. And this is a picture of, of, uh, of, uh, of tenderness. It's a, it's a picture of a dependent relationship. It's a picture of complete trust. It's a complete Complete picture of humility, that you come to Christ in humility, totally dependent upon him, totally trusting in him, 
And so he uses, <coughs> excuse me, this phrase, come to him as newborn babes with this craving. Understanding how important the milk of the word is to you and that you cannot grow without it. And it is a complete necessity. And uh, so Peter uses this figurative language uh, to appeal to our hearts and minds that to rid ourselves of flesh, we must crave the word of God. And uh, and so Peter, notice he says, he calls it the pure milk of the word of God. Uh, milk is a term used by the Apostle Paul to apply to uh, elementary principles, the basics of the faith. Peter doesn't make this distinction. Peter just says the pure milk of the word is the word that we grow and we are nourished by. But Paul makes a distinction. And matter of fact, he refutes uh, uh, the church at uh, Corinth for not being able to handle solid food, but just being able to handle milk. And he complains to them, and he's critical. He said, you need to progress to solid foods and not just the basic principles of milk. So, But Peter doesn't make that distinction. He just says, as newborn babes, hey, desire the pure milk of the word and grow by it. That word pure uh, is the word adolin, A-D-O-L-O-N. It's a Greek word. It's a very specific word. And it says the milk of God's word is pure. There is nothing in the word of God that's adulterated. There's nothing in the word of God that is uh, deceitful. Uh, it does not contain the philosophies of men. There is no secular humanism, is it, in it? There is no, <clears throat> uh, there's no uh, religion in it. It is the pure. It is spiritual. It is pure. It is from God. It is true. It is absolute truth. There's no error in it, and we can trust it. What it tells us to do is best for us. There's nothing in us that contains a virus, if you want to let me apply today. There's nothing in us that is harmful to us, so we can trust it, and we can know that the giver of it, our good Father, through his Spirit, is for our benefit, and is for our good, it is for our protection. So Peter says, desire the pure milk of the Word uh, that you may grow in it. Uh, that word grow in it is written in the Aorus tense. That means continue to grow. It means don't stop growing. It means it's an activity wrought by the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit brings to life that word, and that word grows us and nourishes us. And the growth isn't a, a reflection of our will, but it is a reflection of his will as he is working in each one of us in our particular situations, in our particular uh, personality, he's working his word in us and through us, and he is progressing us as each one of us are going to progress. So we see that, that he's using the word to progress us, and it's a pure word. And then we see uh, this phrase, peculiar phrase maybe, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. This is simply a way for the Holy Spirit to cause us to examine ourselves. Have you tasted that the that the Lord is gracious? Can you say with the psalmist, and he's referring back to Psalm 34, 8, 
Taste and see that the Lord is good. If you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, then you will have an appetite for God, an appetite for his word, a desire for his word. And this is this is an implied invitation to examine your heart. Because remember in the book of Hebrews, turn back a book to Hebrews. Uh, as Keith taught this book, it's been several years ago, but I wrote this down in my in my Bible and it's been helpful to me over the over the last uh, few years and, it, and it's been helpful to me during this study. Uh, the writer of Hebrews, whomever it was, was writing to to save people. He was writing to unsaved people, and he was writing, as Keith said, he was writing to fence setters, uh, fence sitters, and to those who were involved in church, they were around Christian people. They had benefited from the Holy Spirit's work in the lives of the true Christian people. And so uh, it tells us, if you look at uh, Hebrews 6, uh, look at this, starting in verse 4. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have been become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance. Now, we know that we can't lose our salvation. So we understand that the writer of Hebrews is writing to those who have tasted uh, the gift and they have been a partaker of the Spirit in a superfluous way in a way that is associated with the Spirit, but not indwelt by the Spirit. They may have experienced a little pre-conversion work. They may have had their appetites weeded by it. They may have been influenced by it. They may have experienced the benefit of it from true believers. But in the tasting is not a true conversion. But So Peter is asking us to say to examine ourselves. Have you merely, is your faith, just superfluous? Is it? Is it merely an experience? Is it a theological uh, uh, theory with you? Is it? Is it a concept in your mind? Is it? You like to learn, like the Bereans like to learn. Are you? Are you intrigued by Christianity, but you're not changed by Christ of Christianity? So Peter is calling us, as he calls us to these commands, to examine ourselves. Uh, to see and ask yourself, have I indeed tasted that the Lord is gracious? Has his work been effectual in me, and has his work changed me? And so I think this is a good examination for us. So to reiterate, do you crave the word? Have you tasted that the Lord is good? And is God in process of of causing you to lay aside the malice and the envy and the deceit in your heart? That's the imperative command of 1 Peter 2. Now, how is this possible? What is the theology behind this imperative command? And the theology behind this is the work of God in our hearts. God enables us to be obedient because of his work in our hearts. So now if you'll go backwards to verse 14, and I'm going to read, a few, uh, I'm going to read 14 through 18, that's all we're going to have time for today. What is the theology behind the imperative command? How can Peter 
by the Spirit, cause us to disobedience and call us to be obedient. It's because of something that's gone before us in our lives. And the first thing I want us to see, let's read 14 through 18, 1 Peter 14 through 18. As obedient children, not conformed to the former lust, as when you were ignorant, but as he who calls you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were redeemed, that you were not redeemed with corruptible things. Stop. Point one I want to make under this imperative command is, what is the theology behind this command? Is that you are holy. You are holy. The word holy comes from the Greek word hagion. Uh, in this verb, it's hagios. You have been separated unto God. It's the same word we get for saints. God has set you apart, and he has called you to be a saint. The Holy Spirit has set you apart. You are positioned in Christ. So when it says, uh, for he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. We are able to obey the imperative command, number one, because we are holy. We've been set apart by God. And we are to emulate the Holy One. We're to emulate the Holy One. Holy uh, is a word, as you try to describe it, uh, is a word that is otherworldly than us. Uh, scripture is written anthropomorphically. It's written uh, in man's language. The Holy Spirit uses men's language to try to appropriate spiritual truths to us. But the word holy means that Christ, God, the Holy Spirit are completely separate from us. They are perfectly morally pure. They're on another plane. They're in a, they're in a place indescribable to us in our human minds. They are, their eyes are so pure they can't look on evil, it tells us in Habakkuk. Their thoughts are above our thoughts. Their ways are above our ways. They are morally perfect. There is nothing evil. They have no sin nature. So when it says, be ye holy for I am holy, we're called to be the standard in which we are called to is a inapproachable standard. And it's a standard by which the holiness of God and the work of his spirit through the conforming power of the word grows us toward, and we never get there in this world because we have sin natures, and one day we'll be glorified. But this process, it says, be ye holy, for I am holy. God is holy other than us. He's completely separate from us, and because he's that way, we are his children, and we are to resemble him, resemble him. And so when he calls us to be holy in everything that we do, he is calling us to resemble him in our thought pattern, in our actions, in our deeds, in our motivations. All of his deeds, motion, uh, motives, actions, and thoughts are perfect. The standard is be perfect. We are called to holiness. And so 
because we have been set apart, he is in the process of enabling us and he makes us more and more able to become more and more holy, to become more and more faithful, to be more and more consistent in the lay aside. And so when Peter refers to be holy, he remembers writing to Jews and to Gentiles, but Peter's main ministry is to Jews, so Peter naturally is going to refer to Old Testament Scripture. And so if I would refer you, when he says, be holy, for I'm holy, Peter is referring us to Old Testament Scripture, and most specifically, he is referring us to that book of the Bible that nobody reads. He's referring us to Leviticus. Remember Leviticus. Look at Leviticus uh, chapter 11. We see this concept of holiness throughout this book. Uh, but uh, in this instance, Leviticus chapter 11, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, third book of the Bible. Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44 and 45. In this context, he's talking about what the nation of Israel eats. Uh, they can eat things that uh, have... That have clothes, that have cloven hooves, and they chew their cud, and I could go on and on the specifics. We don't need to get caught up in the specifics so much because they don't apply to us as far as foods today. But we need to understand that the point is that Jesus, that God is calling His people to be separate and to be different and not to be like the surrounding pagan nations. And so He's saying, like Peter. You need to rid yourselves of the of the of the uh, worldlyism of the surrounding nation. You're to be different. You're to be obedient and follow me. And so he tells us, look in verse 44 and 45, Leviticus 11. I am the Lord your God. Because He's holy, I'm calling you to holiness. And the reason we obey because He's God, He's a jealous God. So He calls His people. I am the Lord your God. You shall set yourselves apart, and you shall be holy, consecrated and holy, are very similar words, for I am holy. You shouldn't defile yourself with creeping things that creep on the earth, for I am the Lord you God who brings you up out of the land of Egypt. That's talking about redemption. We'll get into that next Sunday, obviously, to be your God, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. So he's talking about within Within our daily lives, the food we eat, we should be separate and different. Look at 19.2 of Leviticus. As, as, as Peter reminds us to be holy, and he's bringing this out of Old Testament uh, law. Uh, Leviticus 19.2. He's talking about obedience to the commandments of worship and, and how we worship. And uh, there's a right way to worship and a prescribed way to worship, and it's a separate way of worship. It's reverential, and it's to the Lord God himself. Look at Leviticus uh, 1 and 2. And the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the congregation and say to them, You shall be holy, for the Lord your God, I am holy, and everyone shall honor his mom and his dad, and he's keep my commandments. I'm going to cause them the holiness and their worship. He calls us to call them the holiness in the way they honor their parents because that honors the Lord. And look at 27 Leviticus. Just another illustration of this concept of the Old Testament uh, teaching on being holy. 20 verse 7, it says, 
Concentrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God, and you shall keep my laws, my statutes, and perform them. I am the Lord God who set you apart. So I'm the one that sets you apart. So we're called to obedience, and the reason why we can comply with the cause to obedience is because we have been called by the Holy One to be holy. And, uh, and Scripture tells us, and I'll read this from one of my commentators, uh, the nature of the Christian life carries the obligation to personal holiness. Hebrews 12:14 says, Pursue holiness, pursue peace without, with all peoples, for without holiness no one shall see the Lord. Holiness is critical. You have to be positionally holy. That's a work of the Spirit. He sets us apart. God the Father declares us righteous and we are justified. We are set apart. And then we have to be practically holy, which in this, the main text of Hebrews says, without holiness, without practical holiness. It is the foundation stone of being a follower of Christ, is to have a life characterized by holiness and to be different. Never should it be spoken of us that we're just like everybody else. When people see Dave and Patricia Brown and the Giffords and 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 uh, the Kellers and and I see dear Ruth with us. Everybody's to say there's something different about Ruth, and she doesn't act like everybody else. And that should be what people think about us when they see us. They're different. They're wholly other. They they don't talk like I do. They don't think like I do. They don't watch what I watch. They don't talk like I talk. And why is that? And so we're to be different. And we're to be holy. God calls us. And uh, notice that the foundation of holiness uh, is obedience. Uh, it says, "Be but uh, as verse fourteen, as obedient children, not being shaped by our former lusts." He's probably speaking to the Gentile world, uh, their former lusts, the way they used to live, their lives were characterized by disobedience and unfaithfulness. And Peter saying. You shouldn't be shaped. You shouldn't look like you used to look like. But you should now be obedient. And you should look like your father. You're adopted children. You should act differently and think differently. And, uh, and you should be, have different outlooks and different viewpoints and different philosophies and different attitudes. And so the, the, the call to holiness is founded in our new nature. You know, before we came to Christ, we had no ability, we had no desire to be obedient. We couldn't be obedient. We, before we came to Christ, we couldn't help sinning. We had to sin. It's our nature. We couldn't do anything about it, and, and we enjoyed it, and, and we wouldn't change it. That's who we were. We were imprisoned and in bondage by our nature, but now that we're new, now that we've been converted, regenerated by the Spirit, we have new desires, we have new wills, we have new abilities. And so the foundation of holiness is obedience. And obedience is the evidence that we're His. And uh, as John said, you know, if you say you love me and you don't obey me, I want to be blunt with you, you're lying. And there's a disconnect. So uh, Scripture calls us to holiness. 
and it calls us to obedience. And uh, obedience is what distinguishes us from the world. If you look in Ephesians 2.2 and in Ephesians 5.6, Paul is talking about the way we used to be and the way we used to go about our business and our natures. And he says in 2.2 of Ephesians, he says, uh, 2.2 of Ephesians, he says, you once walked like this. You once walked according to the prince of the power of the air. And uh, you once walked according to the spirit that works in the sons of disobedience. But now that we're holy, set apart by the spirit, regenerated by grace, we were disobedient, now we're not. If you look at 5, 6 of Ephesians, he reiterates it again. He uses the same terminology. He says, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So this verse is very applicable to me in my life. I have a wayward daughter, as some of you know. And this verse would apply to me as I think toward her. And it's, I want to say, oh, she's this, oh, she's that. But Scripture says, don't let anything deceive you. A lifestyle is the evidence of holiness and obedience. So as much as I would like to say this or I'd like to say that, a lot of you have family members that are lost. Uh, we're praying for Tracy. And as much as we like to say, oh, we grew up in the family, uh, we were taught the word, we went to church, the truth is evidence is in the pudding. And the holiness is the evidence that we are in Christ. And if our lives are characterized by disobedience, that is an indicative uh, indica- it's an indication of we're not at least not right with God, uh, but most probably we're not in Christ. So, so obedience is critical, and it's the foundation of it is because we've been set apart and we're holy. And uh, because of what we started with, I'm going to close here. If you want to finish uh, this thought, I want you to read. If you'll read 15 through 22, next time we're going to talk about. Uh, the Bema Seat Judgment, and that we need to have a reverential fear because we're going to be judged. We're going to talk about that, although we are holy, uh, although we are set apart. We're going to talk about what redemption is. And we're going to talk about the great principles of being bought with the precious blood of Jesus. And then we're going to look at the purifying work of the Word. And then we're going to look at all of these, all of this theology that's going to enable us to lay aside the filth of the flesh, lay aside the malice and the evil speaking, and uh, uh, be conformed to the image of Christ. No, this was unusual. Does anybody have anything to uh, offer or add?